0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. He's been described as a thief, a swindler, and a con man, though he prefers to think of himself as an entrepreneur. He sold illegal booze, ratted out his criminal comrades, drugged women in order to sell them as wives to lonely settlers tried to sell military secrets, committed patent fraud, and fraudulently took over a valuable mine. His name is Mud. Harry Mud. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Today's topic was chosen by our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts who get to vote on one episode topic each month. It's my distinct pleasure to say that the member ranks have recently grown again, thanks to the addition of our newest patron, Mackenzie. They join our other recent additions, like Michael L. and Urspo in helping defray the costs of putting on the podcast, in exchange for exclusive swag, voting rights, and bonus content that is never used on the main feed. So today, we're talking about mud. This ubiquitous combination of water and dirt is useful for science, employed in health and beauty, a little-known component of professional sports, and it's even eaten. To say someone's name is mud is to mean that they are lowly or that they are in trouble of their own making, usually through some form of idiocy. There's an old story that the expression derives from Dr. Samuel Mudd with two Ds, who unwisely took pity on John Wilkes Booth, President Abraham Lincoln's assassin. Mudd treated Booth's broken ankle that he suffered when leaping to the stage of Ford's Theater. For the doctor's troubles, he was sentenced to life in a federal prison. Like many interesting historical stories, this one is not true. The phrase first appeared in print in 1820, 45 years before Lincoln's assassination. It probably originated in another obscure bit of English slang. Mud was an 18th century equivalent of dope, or dolt, or idiot, and was used through the 19th century by union workers, equivalent to a scab or a strikebreaker. Let's start with geophagy, the scientific term for eating dirt, or mud, or earth. On the island nation of Haiti, cookies made of mud are eaten, and while they are tradition, they are not really eaten by choice. The mud helps to fill up the stomachs of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, especially for the people in areas like the slum of City Soleil. Yellow dirt from the central plateau of the island is mixed with salt and vegetable shortening, spread into discs and allowed to dry in the sun. The mud has long been prized by pregnant women who believe it to be an antacid and an important source of calcium, though there is no science to back that up. Even before the devastating 2010 earthquake, many Haitians lived in what is called food insecurity, a phrase that really undersells the condition. Being an island, it imports much of its food, and increased prices of basic ingredients, or the petroleum needed to get them there, means less food is available and at higher prices. 80% of people in Haiti live on less than $2 a day, So if two cups of rice cost 70 cents, but a mud cookie is only 5 cents, the choice, if unpleasant, is obvious. The mud cookies are not only food in the slums, but an important part of their economy. For some people, making and selling them is their only source of income. Dirt is trucked in from the central town of Hinchi to the markets where women, and it's exclusively women who make the cookies, Buy bags of dirt for $5 a bag, sometimes on credit. In the nearby slums and shanty towns, the dirt is sifted to remove clumps and rocks, then mixed with shortening and salt. It's spread in circles on sheets to dry in the sun, sometimes next to open sewers. If it rains or if the scorching sun ducks behind the clouds, the cookies can't dry and the women end up owing money that they don't have. The finished cookies are carried in buckets to markets or sold on the street. They're said to have a smooth consistency, though they suck all of the moisture out of your mouth and the taste of dirt will linger for hours. But you're not as hungry, so you've got that going for you. Assessments of the health effects are mixed. The dirt can contain deadly parasites or toxins, but it could also strengthen the immunity of fetuses in the womb to certain diseases, says Gerald Callahan, an immunology professor at Colorado State University. In the best-case scenario, these mud cookies will bolster the weak immune system of Haitians, who wouldn't otherwise have access to medication. At worst, eating soil could make someone even sicker than they already are, since the water used to make the cookies is often contaminated. Eating dirt is also really hard on the enamel of your teeth. So how did Haiti get the ignominious title of poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? It was the first Caribbean nation to throw off the literal shackles of the Atlantic slave trade, and most neighboring island nations are doing okay for themselves. In the 18th century, Haiti was a French colony, with many slaves and a few wealthy white plantation owners. That uneven distribution of wealth has continued to the present day. Making matters worse, when France vacated the country in 1804, they insisted on being repaid for the value of the slaves they had lost. And Haiti paid it, though it took them 143 years. Meddling from foreign governments, (laughs) cough, and a succession of corrupt and inept homegrown governments hasn't helped anything. Then there's the worsening hurricane seasons brought on by climate change, with 2016's Hurricane Matthew destroying 90% of homes in some areas. There is never a bad time to send help to the people of Haiti, which you can do through charities like Feed the Children and Food for the Poor. But you don't have to be facing Haitian levels of poverty to eat dirt. Closer to home, in southern states of the U.S., people have been eating a particular kind of clay soil for generations. White dirt, as it's sometimes called, is actually a soft, chalky clay called kaolin. It's widely used to make porcelain, paper, cosmetics, and paint. The mineral kaolinite is one of the most common in the world, and the best-known deposits are in the southeastern U.S. A shopping center in Sandersville, Georgia, is known as the kaolin capital of the world. Mom-and-pop stores and flea markets sell the dirt in little Ziploc bags. They're labeled as novelty items, but everybody knows what they're for. Seeing those bags is what piqued the interest of documentary filmmaker Adam Forrester. Whether they tell you or not, says Forrester, people are eating it. He first came across the packaged clay in his hometown of Columbus, Georgia, and his documentary Eat White Dirt takes a closer look at this strange, under-the-radar practice. Eating dirt has a unique history there's evidence that our ancestors were eating dirt at least two million years ago, when Homo sapiens were still Homo habilis. According to nutritional anthropologist Sarah Young at Cornell University, it's thought that slaves introduced the practice to the U.S., but this geophagy was practiced independently among Native American populations long before the arrival of Europeans. Eating dirt can be a component of a disorder known as pica, in which people compulsively crave things that aren't food. For more examples, watch any randomly selected episode of the TLC show My Strange Addiction. You will inevitably see someone eating or drinking something that has never appeared as an ingredient in any cookbook ever. Things like drywall, cat hair, toilet paper, and scotch tape. Young found in her research that while both men and women ate the white dirt, only women seemed to actually crave it but why? That's the million-dollar question, says Jung, and the most common response is, I don't know. I just do. There are some theories. Clay is known to act as a natural filter. That's why it's used to clean up oil spills and absorb the reek of the cat litter box. Young says it may have a similar effect in the human body, acting as a mud mask for the gut, It binds to all these harmful chemicals and exits the body before entering your bloodstream. Bear in mind, there haven't been any clinical trials using clay as an antidote to poison. And if you're looking for the next big thing to detoxify, let me politely remind you that that's what your liver and kidneys are for. Clay's ability to bind harmful substances might explain why pregnant women suffer the most intense pica cravings the immune system is slightly suppressed during pregnancy, protecting the fetus from rejection, but leaving the body vulnerable. Pica sufferers also tend to be concentrated in hot, humid areas, where pathogens multiply and spread more quickly than in cooler, drier climates. Before you run to the store for some kaolin clay or head to your backyard with a shovel, Paul Schroeder, a geologist specializing in kaolin at the University of Georgia, says that while the clay eating habit may have evolved as a protective measure it could be harmful to your health the clay's amazing binding properties could work too well and absorb nutrients from food that's being digested which would be particularly bad for pregnant women plus you can never be certain what the clay has absorbed before you dug it out of the ground far from flea market baggies of white clay to mud that is considered more valuable than gold It's not in a fancy spa, and you definitely won't get a complimentary mimosa while you're there. This mud is in Antarctica, and it may offer clues to what types of life, if any, could exist on distant planets or moons that are also covered in ice. In the first such study of subglacial sediment, scientists with the British Antarctic Survey and other institutions are studying the mud at the bottom of Lake Hodgson on the Antarctic Peninsula. As if getting there weren't hard enough, the scientists have to get through 10 to 13 feet, 3 to 4 meters, of ice. That's a cakewalk compared to the more than 1,600 feet, or 500 meters, of ice that used to cap the lake. The sediments the scientists are studying were deposited when the lake was sealed under that thick ice nearly 100,000 years ago. In the journal Diversity, David Pierce of the University of Northumbria and his colleagues reported that they grew... 20 cultures of microbes found in the uppermost layer of the sediment core, proving that there are viable extremophiles, or life that thrives in extreme environments, in the lake. They also found fossilized fragments of DNA from many different kinds of microbes that seem to have adapted to Antarctica's extremes over the eons. Understanding how microbes and other forms of life are thriving in the cold, dark, isolated, nutrient-poor places under the frozen continent's thick ice, could help researchers learn about the origins of life on Earth and the possibilities of life on other worlds, like Jupiter's icy moon Europa. Nearly a quarter of the genetic sequences identified in the study do not match with any known sequences, the researchers reported, suggesting a diversity of never before seen life forms may be beneath Antarctic lakes. Further investigation is needed, but the researchers say many of the species in this isolated ecosystem may be brand new to science. With continued research, Pierce says, we can start to build a picture of what limits life in extreme conditions, and then start thinking about what might limit life on other planets. Several teams are racing to obtain pristine samples from Antarctica's nearly 380 subglacial lakes. Scientists recently found indications that bacteria live in Lake Hulons, which is buried 2,650 feet or 800 meters below the West Antarctic ice sheet. Russian scientists are currently analyzing water samples collected in early 2013 from Lake Vostok, which is buried under more than 2 miles or 3 kilometers of ice and has not been touched in 14 million years. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... There was some choice interaction on our social media this week. On a post about Nyepi, the Balinese New Year, which is spent in silent contemplation, Emily Kokosaro pointed out that the tradition is similar to the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. Under the meme I posted to tease the calendar-slash-New Year topic about the months not lining up with the Latin numbers in their names, Joel J wrote that they were called Quintilis and Sextilis, before they changed their names. It's January and February which were added later, after Caesar went traveling and saw just how terrible their calendar was. Also, both Caesar and Augustus took one day off of February and added it to their months, which is why it only has 28. Boom. Bonus facts. Over in the Brainiac Breakroom, which is and always will be free to join, and we've just hit 100 members, Adam, who was also the host of the Odd Dad Out podcast, shared a mental floss video of things you didn't know had names, many of which I also did in one of Your Brain on Facts earliest episodes, and there is never a bad time for mental floss. Thanks as always to our commenters and retweeters, like Eric Parfait, Richard Enriquez, and The Most Stable Genius. We've also had another review that it delights me to share with the class. Scubala76 left five stars and said, Can't get enough of this. My brain loves being on facts. If you want to hear your username used on the show, it's as easy as leaving a review on your podcast app of choice or interacting with our social media at facebook and instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and twitter at brainonfactspod. We consider it a hallmark of Americana, along with hot dogs and apple pie, which are German and British respectively, but we'll gloss over that for now. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks, we're talking about the value of mud to Major League Baseball. Quick bonus fact, Jack Norworth, who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game, wouldn't actually attend a baseball game until three decades after he wrote the song. For Major League pitchers, getting a grip is serious business a grip on the ball, that is. It's important that they have control of the ball before launching it at another human being at the same speed as a car on the highway. That's where mud comes in, specifically Lena Blackburn's original baseball rubbing mud. Wait, wouldn't putting mud on the ball make it slippery? Surprisingly, no. Fresh out of the box, baseballs are glossy and slippery, meaning that they could leave the pitcher's hand wrong and go wherever they jolly well please. The mud is used to lightly roughen the leather to give it some texture, but not just any old mud will do. The story of this special mud begins, as so many innovations do, with a tragedy. On August 16, 1920, in the fifth inning of a game between the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees, Cleveland shortstop Ray Chapman was struck in the head by a fastball thrown by Yankees pitcher Carl Mays, causing a severe brain injury that would kill him later that night. To this day, Chapman remains the only major league baseball player to die as a result of an incident on the field. His death forced the MLB to find ways to make the game safer. Your mind might immediately leap to batting helmets, but theirs didn't. Various types of protective headgear had been tried but it would take a near-fatal skull fracture during a game in 1937 before the players became interested in wearing anything. Even then, batting helmet use was optional for another 20 years. Another approach would be to strictly police the practice of headhunting by pitchers, throwing the ball near or at the batter's head to drive him back from crowding the plate and making the strike zone smaller. But no, they didn't go that way with it either. What the MLB opted for instead was a 1921 rule, still in effect today, that requires the umpire shall inspect the baseballs and that they are properly rubbed so that the gloss is removed. Making a rule is easy. Executing it, somewhat less so. Various methods and substances, from shoe polish to tobacco juice, were tried, the most popular of which was rubbing the balls with infield dirt mixed with a little water. This worked too well, scuffing up the leather in a way that could change the flight path of the ball, something pitchers still use when they think they can get away with it. What they really needed was a consistent way to remove the gloss without darkening the ball, scuffing it up, or getting any gunk stuck in the laces, which can also affect the flight path. Enter Philadelphia Athletics' third base coach, Russell Lena Blackburn, who was a player himself when Chapman was killed. He was also an avid fisherman who spent his off-seasons fishing in the backwaters of the Delaware River near his home in New Jersey. Reasoning that the infield dirt was too abrasive, Blackburn experimented with the ultra-soft mud at the bottom of the Delaware River. Its soft, pudding-like consistency allowed it to work as an ultra-fine grit buffing agent. You only get that consistency in certain parts of the river, where tributaries bring in finer grain sediment. Just as he'd hoped, a tiny bit of mud took the gloss off the balls without staining or damaging them. As a bonus, it didn't smell like the other things they'd tried. Soon, Blackburn was selling his original baseball rubbing mud to every American League team, but only the American League. He wouldn't sell to their rivals the National League because he'd been an American League player, though he would eventually relent in the 1950s. To this day, Major League Baseball still uses the same mud, though the company passed to John Haas, a friend of Blackburn's upon his death, and then to Haas' son-in-law Burns Bentliff and today is run by Burns' son Jim. Jim Bentliff keeps the location of the annual July to October mud harvest of about a thousand pounds or four hundred and fifty four kilograms a secret. So secret in fact that that he had two children with his wife before he deemed it safe to tell her where the spot was. He makes about $20,000 a season for the effort. Even though the product is now sold to the public, is popular also with the NFL for adding grip to new footballs, and is used on 200,000 baseballs per year, such a small amount is needed per ball that the MLB only uses two 32-ounce buckets, which retail for $75 each. Just a dabble, do you? Speaking of sports, mud plays a much more visible role in a race slash obstacle course called the Tough Mudder. Since its first race in May 2010, over two and a half million people across seven countries have competed, each paying about $200 for the privilege. It began with an idea by two British students of the Harvard Business School, one of whom was a former counterterrorism officer. The original course, held at Bear Creek Ski Resort in Pennsylvania, featured military boot camp-style obstacles over a miles-long course, many of which involved slogging through, you guessed it, mud. The creators began expanding to other cities and franchising the course. As with anything successful, competitors quickly began popping up, so Tough Mudder has had to up the ante to stay competitive. In recent years, electric shocks tear gas, and two fire-based events. One drops participants through a ring of fire, and the other forces them to slide through a five-foot wall of fire into the water, have been added. Before competing, contestants have to sign a waiver that reads in part, I acknowledge that the Tough Mudder event is an extreme test of my physical and mental limits that carries with it the inherent risk of physical injury. Inherent risks are risks that cannot be eliminated completely, regardless of the care and precautions taken. It goes on to release Toughmutter from any and all claims, actions, suits, demands, losses, and other liabilities in relation to any death, physical or mental injury resulting from the inherent risks of the event or ordinary negligence. I don't know about you, but I for one dislike the phrase ordinary negligence there. I mean, I've signed a number of indemnities in my life that mention negligence, but ordinary negligence makes it sound like they expect a certain amount of half acidness in the daily operations. Anyway, legal ease hasn't stopped lawsuits. One was filed by the family of a 28-year-old Maryland man who died during the 2013 race in West Virginia while attempting the walk-the-plank obstacle, in which competitors climb a wall and drop into a pool the man was submerged for at least five and possibly as long as 15 minutes before being pulled from the water. The coroner ruled it an accidental drowning, but his family filed a wrongful death suit, claiming that organizers didn't provide adequate rescue divers at the event's deep water obstacle. And a New York man filed a lawsuit saying that he nearly lost his leg after his right knee was impaled by a jagged piece of metal under a pool of sludge in the electroshock portion of the 2013 race. If the obstacles don't get you, the mud itself might. Tough Mudder and other adventure races require a lot of space, so they're often staged in rural areas, near or even in livestock pastures. Where there's livestock, there's poop. And where there's poop, there can be bacteria and viruses, like Campylobacter, the virus that causes the norovirus, and even E. coli. And you're swimming in it. Symptoms may not come up until a few days later and can include nausea, diarrhea, abdominal cramps, and fever. After a 2012 tough mutter in Nevada, three military personnel were admitted to the Nellis Air Force Base Medical Center with vomiting and bloody diarrhea. All had fallen face first in the mud on the tough mutter course on a nearby cattle ranch a week before. Subsequent investigations linked 22 more cases. Most likely caused by infection with the fecally transmitted Campylobacter coli. There are things you can do to protect yourself if this grown up version of a Double Dare physical challenge is just calling your name. Try to avoid ingesting the mud or any surface water during the run, which is, you know, good advice on any day. Rinse off as soon as possible after the race. Don't touch your eyes, nose, or mouth and definitely don't eat until you've properly washed all over with soap and clean water. If you do catch one of those nasty bugs, stay home and rest, drink plenty of water, and eat yogurt with an active culture to help your body get your microbiome back in balance. Also be on the lookout for worsening symptoms, because in extreme cases, certain types of E. coli can cause kidney failure, especially in people with weakened immune systems. Tough Mudder races also test the metal of local emergency rooms. The 2013 race in Pennsylvania saw 38 participants taken to the ER at the Lehigh Valley Hospital, and 100 more had to be treated on site. Understandably, this did not sit well with the staff, like emergency physician Dr. Marna Greenberg. She had patients suffering seizures, dehydration, fainting, and later co-wrote a study criticizing the extremity of the event. She wants Tough Mudder to work with the local hospitals so they're not blindsided by a sudden influx of patients. For all the gloom and doom I've been spinning around it, Tough Mudder is statistically fairly safe as endurance sports go. Those who participate tend to be in good physical condition and have trained specifically for the event. The obstacles are designed and tested with outside engineers as well as with the help of fire and emergency medical personnel most injuries are minor, requiring only first aid, and only the one death has occurred. For comparison, for every million people who go skiing, there are 54 fatalities. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So who was the ne'er-do-well rapscallion from the top of the show? Full name Harcourt Fenton Mudd, he was a recurring character from the original Star Trek series. A fun character for the writers to play with, Mudd's antics continued in novels, comics, the animated series that ran for 22 episodes in 1973, and he even made it to the home computer game Star Trek Starfleet Academy in 1997. Remember, you can always find the full script of the episode and links to the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.